Today we are in Hebrews chapter 6, the first nine verses. Uh, we'll pray and we'll get into this passage. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter to the Hebrews. Uh, Father, we find ourselves in a, a, a difficult section as we navigate the whole of this book. And so, Lord, we ask that your spirit would guide us, that he would illuminate the meaning of the passage. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us uh, to understand what was happening in, in the context of the setting. Uh, Father, that you would help us to um, be able to draw out principles uh, from this passage that apply to us today. I ask that you would convict us, that you would prompt us, that you would Move us along in our relationship with you. We ask that you would bring maturity in our lives. Help us to navigate uh, this life and this calling that you've called us to. Uh, We each are in various stages of life and in different areas. And so you've called us to be a light in those various areas. And so we ask that you would help us to do just that. Uh, We commit this time to you. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify themselves, the Son of God, and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. And Father, we praise you for your word. We ask that you would help our minds to focus on the text. Father, soften our hearts that we would hear your voice. Lord, that you would speak to us during this time. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. All right, so we find ourselves in in this section... uh, A unique section. I'm trying to formulate my thoughts on, on where I want to start. Um, when I was a child, I grew up in a small airplane. My dad was a pilot, and we traveled, you know, every, everywhere in this little airplane. And and he, being a former Navy pilot, you know, lived life a little bit on the the wild side. Even in his elder age, he uh, he's no he's no longer flying. Um, but when I was a kid, I'll never forget the first experience when my dad said, hey, Gunn, you want to go uh, 
Let's go practice stalls. Sure, Dad, that sounds like fun. So you guys are pilots here. I had no idea, like what, you know, I was like, as an adult, I kind of get a better idea of stalls means an engine that stalls. If you're on the road, that's okay. If you're in an airplane, that's a different situation. And so I must have been like six, because I can remember the terror of the whole incident the first time. It got fun after that. But So we take off in the plane. He said, we're going to go up to altitude. We're going to go a little bit higher than normal because we need some space. Space. I should have. That was a clue. <laughs> Between the falling and the ground so that we could recover. And so we got up to whatever altitude we got up to and he said, okay, we're, we're going to begin. And, and I remember he just took the yoke and he began pulling back, pulling back, pulling back. And we started going up, 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 up. And it was really cool at first. And then all of a sudden, I just remember there being like this loud buzzing sound. And then every light on the dashboard was flashing up like, warning, 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 warning. It's like, oh, no, we're going to die. I'm like, like, I remember being on the, I don't think I verbally was screaming, but on the inside, I'm like thinking, we are, we are toast. This is not, this isn't good. My dad messes with some stuff. All of a sudden, what happened is the plane just went silent. And it went silent because the motor stalled. Everything became clear to me in that moment, what we were practicing. And I didn't like it. It didn't feel good. And then the plane, I kind of hit, it felt like zero gravity. I started floating in the seat a little bit because the plane started doing a nosedive. And my dad's just sitting there calm and collected. And I'm like, Houston, we have a problem. We need to do something. Like, do something, Dad. And he was just sitting there just like, we're just, we got to ride it out a little bit before we start fiddling with stuff. And then eventually it felt like we were going straight down, but straight down the angle. Probably We were probably not going straight down, but it sure felt like we were going straight down. Then my dad starts tinkering with some stuff, turns it over, turns it over. I'm going, oh, no, this was a bad idea. This is a really bad idea. Then finally on the third time, everything fires up, and then we vroom. I was like, oh, we survived. Let's just get on the ground. My dad says, oh, we're just going to do about three more of these. <laughs> so we did three more of these, and 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 I remember the tear of it the first time. And this is something that pilots have to do over and over and over again to sort of practice for the day if it ever happens that your plane stalls. And, and, and it, just this week there was an incident that I, I don't know the outcome sounds like there on the 405 by the John Wayne Airport, a, pilot after, a plane after takeoff, a small plane took off, engine failed, turned around, they landed on the 405. Um, sounds like that the pilot and the passenger are in critical condition, but they're going to be okay, and nobody on the road was hurt. And, and I'm, I'm certain that they were able to navigate the situation because of practicing stalls. And so when the, when the moment occurred, uh, there was no panic, and they were able to, to do what they were trained to do. And I bring this story up because this is a story in this very difficult passage that keeps coming to my mind. Verse 1 starts with, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. So we have to kind of get our bearings in Hebrews. Um, Hebrews, again, was written to a group of Jewish believers. 
We don't really know their location. There's a bunch of speculation over where they were geographically. Uh, we, we don't know who the author was. We know that whoever wrote this was a Jewish person that had a very good handle on the Old Testament. We know that during the time of writing of Hebrews, that the temple was, was still operational, the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, uh, so we believe that it was written A.D. 65 to 68-ish. Uh, we know that the temple was destroyed by Rome in A.D. 70. Um, we know that these small group of believers, those who have believed it, that Jesus was the Messiah, they'd given their life to him, uh, they faced extreme persecution. Uh, some were being executed for their faith. Um, many that had once followed after Jesus basically had drifted from Christ back under temple worship and had sort of left the faith. Um, the believers that are being written, they're facing um, uncertainty. They're facing Questions about, is Jesus truly the Messiah? They're facing community, family pull to sort of leave what they're doing, to return back to Judaism, to return back under the law. And so the author masterfully writes this letter, demonstrating and showing the recipients that Jesus is greater than all things. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the priests. And two weeks ago, he began to enter into this uh, explanation uh, concerning Jesus being compared and contrasted with, with the priests of the day. The priests of the day were descendants of Aaron, were of the Levitical line. Um, and Jesus was of a different order of priesthood. And he introduces this, this, this priest, Melchizedek, that appears before the institution of the priesthood, uh, in the pages of Genesis. And he begins to make his case showing why it's so important that Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek um, and not of the order of Aaron. But midway through his, his discussion, he pauses, and that's in verse 11 of chapter 5. And he says, I have so much more to say to you about this. And he is going to continue. He's 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 in basically the last verse of chapter 6 and going on into chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, he is going to unpack why Jesus being of the order of Melchizedek is so critical for our faith and our understanding. But he pauses. And we see this pastorally heart from chapter 5, verse 11, to the end of chapter 6, where he's trying to get the reader's attention. He says, I have so much to say about Melchizedek, but you're not, you're not able to keep up with me, not because what I'm saying is difficult, but because you haven't matured at the level at which you should have matured. You guys are drinking milk. You're singing your spiritual ABCs. At this time, you should be teaching. You should be leading, but you, you haven't grown. It's like a child that isn't make, making the milestones on the growth chart. It's, it's, it's worrisome. You know, when your six-month-old can babble a word or two, it's really cute and it's really special. But, but if your 15-year-old is still babbling and can't speak, that's really worrisome and they have to do something. And so verses 11 through 14 last week, this was 
This was a hard word given. And so following from this hard word, he continues in these first three verses. And he says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of three different building blocks, which we'll look at. So he says, guys, you need to press on. Stop learning your ABCs over and over and over again. The ABCs are very important. I I learned my ABCs when I was, I don't know, Sixth grade, seventh grade. I'm just joking. I don't know. Like, I was a slow learner, but I eventually got my ABCs, and then I then I moved on. Am I still using my ABCs? Absolutely. To read this text, I have to know my ABCs. Um, and so he lays out three things, sort of three building blocks, within these first three verses that are very Jewish, very much in context for them. For those of us who aren't Jewish, this is going to be sort of hard for us to follow along. And even if you were Jewish today, you would have a difficult time with this because the temple was destroyed in AD 70. No Jewish individual has gone to the temple to participate in an an offering, a sacrifice that's being made on their behalf. And so he's encouraging, let us Let us press on to maturity. At the end of verse 3, he says, and this we will do if God permits. He recognizes that this this gift of maturity in the Christian life is a gift of God, and God is the one who ultimately brings it about. And so there's these couplets. Um, Couplet number one, this, this building block dealing with salvation. The New Testament, Hebrews makes it very clear all, all, all through that, that salvation is based on faith. It's a gift of God's grace to us. It's based on the work that Christ did on our behalf, not on anything that we have done or can do on our own, occur, on our, on our own accord. And so he says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. So the dead works, these individuals who had, who had tasted Christ, who had, who had participated in, 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 in what he had done through the church, they are now walking away from Christ who had made the ultimate sacrifice for them. They're going back to the temple, and at the temple, they're making sacrifices over and over and over again. They're, they're doing the rituals. They're doing what the rabbis had said or the system of works that if you want to be good with God, you do these things. Paul, I believe, in Philippians 2 talks about that according to the law, uh, he was blameless. That as, that as this righteous man, as what the rabbis laid out, he obeyed every last thing. But he said this stuff is rough. I mean, he says it's dung. It's a word that I couldn't even use. But we're Valley Center people. We know what dung is, and you don't need a translation. He said all of this religious stuff, was, it's, weight, it's useless. It's of no value. Christ crucified is the only thing that I need. And so this couplet he gives not laying the foundation of repentance from dead works, going back to the temple, and faith toward God. He said faith towards God is everything. Building block number two, he says of instruction about washings, plural. uh, The word is literally baptisms and laying on of hands. So this is sort of the the second foundational block. Um, What's... The first part that's being contrasted is the baptisms or washings, I think, is probably a, uh, is a fair translation. The idea is that it's plural. 
contrasted with the Christian baptism, which would be singular, um, so if you were a Jewish person and you were approaching the temple, today if you make a trip to Israel, our next trip is we're like about a year and a half out, March of 2019, all of the things are, I'm in the process of planning the, the trip at this point, uh, just to kind of put that out there so you guys can start preparing. Um, as you approach the temple, today even, you'll see these remains. There's, there's sort of like holes in the ground, and there's steps going down, and then there's steps coming out. There's a number of them leading to the temple. And so if you were a worshiper going to make your sacrifice, going to the temple, as you approach the holiest of holies, you would go down the dirty steps, baptize yourself in a little dunk tank, then you would walk up the clean steps and you would go out. And then as you got closer, there'd be another one. You'd do this multiple times. And it was a picture reminding you of how unholy and how dirty you are spiritually as you're approaching God. It was a reminder to you. Now the Christian baptism is an external picture, a, a symbol we're told in Ephesians 1.13 that after hearing the gospel that Jesus died for you according to the scriptures for your sins, he was buried and he rose on the third day. We're told that when you believe, when you respond to that message in faith, we're told that at that moment of belief that the spirit of God indwells you, seals you, baptizes you until the day of redemption. And so water baptism is an outward symbol demonstrating what has happened to you inwardly. And so it's a, it's a contrast. And they're being pulled back to these washings when he says, come to Christ, be baptized, you're cleansed. This laying on the hands, this is, a, th- this one is, there's a bunch of different thoughts. T- to me, the one that seems to make the most sense is as they approached the temple and as the priest would sacrifice an animal, the priest would literally take his hands and he would lay his hands on the animal and it was a picture that my hands represent my sin and my sin is being placed on this animal and as I slit this animal's throat, it's happening as a consequence to my sin and I pray that God receives this offering. My sin has caused this. And he's saying what's foundational, who is our lamb? It was Christ, once and for all. That if we come to him in faith, his sacrifice was sufficient for us. You don't need to continually make sacrifices anymore. And so they're leaving the the Messiah who gave his life as a ransom for us. And they're going back under the law and they're continuing to make sacrifices over and over again when when the sacrifice has already been made. Then he says the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. This is sort of building block number three. I'm moving through this first section quickly. Uh, This is looking prophetically. To me, it's like, well, this is after death. That's when things really matter. So he's pointing prophetically the resurrection of the dead. The scripture makes it clear that the dead will rise and face judgment. And are you wanting to put your money on your own sacrifices or do you want to put it on the Messiah's sacrifice? And saying this is the one that matters. And this we will do if God 
permits, this growth will happen if God allows it. So I move quickly to get to the hard section. Verses 4 through 8 are arguably the, the most difficult passages, verses of the whole of the scripture. Um, if you're visiting, welcome. This is a great opportunity. To, you know, we just take a verse at a time and work our way through a book of the Bible. Ray Stedman says it's the naughtiest problem passage in Hebrews, if not the whole Bible. Not naughtiest like a kid, like you're a naughty child. Naughtiest like a, a knot tied into it, you know, and you have a bunch of line and all it gets unraveled. It's like, oh man, like I don't even deal with like trying, if it's fishing line or if it's line, I just get out the scissors and let's try to make the most use of it, start cutting away. Barclay says this is one of the most terrible passages in scripture. Al Mohler said these verses are some of the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament. And quotes along these lines are rampant. Everybody says these these are hard. Um, The difficulty comes in figuring out who is being talked about in this section. So in verse 4, we read, For in the case of those who once had been enlightened and had tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So in the beginning, in the case of those who have once been, once been enlightened, who are the those? There are a ton of different, I mean, a ton of different views concerning this. There are three main ones. My aim is not to sort of unpack all three of them. You'll see where I land um, on the third one. But the, the first one, the first opinion on this is that the, the those in this, for in the case of those who once had been enlightened, had tasted the heavenly gift, the, the those that they would subscribe to is that these are genuine Christians. These are those who have heard the gospel, they've responded to the gospel biblically, as Ephesians 1.13 says, that the Spirit of God indwells them, that they're sealed by the Spirit. But then, for whatever reason, they walk away and then the, the, the sealing is sort of undone and they lose their salvation. Um, there's a problem with those that hold that view. Um, generally speaking, everybody. So when I say everybody, I'm sure, okay, you're going to find one person out there that is say, "Oh, I don't." Generally speaking, the whole of those that are in this camp, they would say that if an individual legitimately became saved and received the Spirit of God and they were sealed in Him, they walk away, they lose their salvation the invitation is still open to them. So they can lose their salvation and then they can get it back. They could lose it again and then they could get it back and this could happen over the whole course of their life. And the aim is when they die, hopefully that they're in and not out. The problem that, and a person that's in this camp and arguing from a reasonable perspective, acknowledging the scripture, they they will acknowledge that their problem is in verse 6. 
Because in verse 6 it says, And they who have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. So they would acknowledge that their, their open invitation of losing it and getting it back, they, they recognize that they have to say, well, the reality is if they lost it, they can never. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they're repentant and suddenly they run into a hitch there. Uh, option number two, or view number two on this section, is that this is written to Christians, those who are, are genuinely, truly born again. Okay, I guess I'm not supposed to. Uh, there's a whole little section here on the first one. I think I'll pause there. I, uh, do I talk about it? Do I not talk about it? <laughs> okay, we have a vote to talk about it. Okay. Um, so I have a dear friend. We like, we love debating spiritual things. We get together and we get out our swords and we go to town on each other. And years ago, this friend of mine, he, he would say, because this passage, it, it is the, it is the proof text for those who hold that you can lose your salvation. This is the text. And so then we would sort of go down the road and say, okay, well, let's look at the whole of Scripture. And, and, and what does Jesus say? Does Jesus give us any insight? And so in, in John chapter 10, verse 28, uh, Jesus says, I give eternal life to them. So we have to pause there and I say, hey, so-and-so, my dear friend who Ann and I love deeply, and she knows exactly who I'm talking about, but I can't look at her, so I don't want to say his name. The, the first problem is, is eternal life. And so if Jesus gives you eternal life and you receive it and then you lose it, how eternal was that? It wasn't very eternal. Like maybe it was a couple weeks, a couple years. Maybe you made it 20 years. Say you live to be 300 years old and you make it 199 years or 299 years, but you lose it. That's still not very eternal. So if Jesus says it's eternal life that he's giving, eternal means it's sort of eternal. He continues and he says, and they will never perish and no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. And so I look at him and I say, if you're in the hand of Christ, nobody can get you out. And he looks at me and he says, brother, you're on the edge of the hand and you just jump out. It doesn't say anything about you can't jump out. I said, well, let's keep reading. Okay. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I was like, if you jump out, he's just going to snatch you by the ear and yank you back in. Because your will to leave isn't stronger than his will to keep you. And you are like a toddler that's walking down the street with mom holding your hand. And you could be being drugged like this. And you're not getting out. If you truly are. In Ephesians 1.13, you were sealed by the Spirit until the day of redemption. We're told that if you receive the Spirit of God, God says this is a good faith deposit. I, it's with you till the day of redemption. It's, it's irrevocable. So if you hold this, I still love you if you hold this position. I, like, it's, to, to me, is a, I see where they're and we'll get there and we'll unpack this. View number two. This is true, true Christians that are being faced with a hypothetical situation. So it's, it's not really possible. Um, the author is sort of writing that if a Christian who is a legitimate Christian was to walk away, 
it would be so terrible that it's just physically, it, it can't be done because then you're putting Christ on trial again. And, and, and this view is minimal. It's not really a, a widely held. But the reason it's sort of come about is because of the influence of the King James, New King James. Um, and you'll notice in verse 6, if you have the King James, and I'm, nothing's bad about the King James. I'm not, I'm, I'm not knocking a translation. But verse 6 begins with the if. So sort of like hypothetically, if this was to happen, there's no way this could possibly happen. Most of the other translations start with like a, and then have fallen away. It changes the wording, which then changes the posture of the, the discussion of who the they is. And so with that, sort of for time's sake, moving along here, view number three, the one that I most subscribe to, um, is in the context of the whole of Hebrews, which seems to make sense, and even beyond Hebrews in, in, in the New Testament, and is that there are those who are amongst us, I'm not saying just us, like I'm not calling any person out here, but within the Christian community historically from the early church to present day, there there is sort of tares growing amongst wheat, that there are there are unbelievers in the midst of believers who walk like a duck, quack like a, I mean, they look like a Christian, they walk like a Christian, they've got a big Bible that zips, they've been baptized, they've gone through everything, but they're not actually Christians. And this is terribly difficult because none of us are God. We can measure the outside fruit. But the longer that you're a Christian, I don't want to show of hands, but I, I just assume if you've been a Christian for more than like five years, You've met somebody, you've known somebody who you love deeply, who was on fire for the Lord. Quite frankly, two guys that had huge impact in my life spiritually. Like, I don't even know, like, I think they led me to the Lord, and I have no clue if they're even Christians at this day. And to see somebody who is so on fire, and then you get down the road, and then they've gone away, then the big question mark is, were they even saved? And I, and I don't want to get confused in this because th there are believers who are backslidden believers. The Bible makes it clear that there are those who are in Christ that have they, there's no evidence of them being even followers of Christ. And, and I think in 1 Corinthians 3 that says when they, when they perish and they stand before, it's like passing through the fire and, and they're there, they're saved, but there's no anything to, to show of it. So, so there are carnal Christians, and the reality at some level, we all are carnal Christians in this, in this life, in this body. We have our flesh and our spirit within us. But what we're talking about here is the individual who, who showed all signs of being a believer. Years go by, and not only are they not believers, but, but, but there's a hostility to the gospel. And for those of us who have had friends that have gone down that road who we thought were our brothers and sisters in Christ that have departed, that's a, that's a, it's a, it's a heart-wrenching, I don't even have words to describe that feeling. And so clearly the people in Hebrews were experiencing that. The author is concerned for them at some level. Um, it's a terrifying thought, or it should be a terrifying thought 
to think that there are those that we know that, that, that I myself could think that I'm a believer and that I'm not actually a believer. And some of you might be pressing back and going, Gunner, there's no way this has to be a legitimate believer because if you, if you walk like a duck, quack like a duck, you are a duck. I'll, I just want to throw one name out there to you guys that you all know. Judas Iscariot. He walked with Jesus all the days of his life. He saw the miracles. He was, he was one of the twelve. There's absolutely no evidence that he ever came to Christ. And what did Jesus say to him at the Lord's Supper? Jesus said, it would be better if you had never been born. And I think that this passage, sort of where we're going, that, if, that there's a different level of accountability. If you sit under Bible teaching and you're exposed to God's word and what he's revealed over and over and over and over, there's a different level of accountability for us who have heard and rejected. And I acknowledge there's, a, there's, there's tension here. I totally believe in assurance of salvation. Um, on one hand, there's nothing worse for us to do, and I think that there's a lot in America, in American Christianity. I feel like there are many people who are not saved who are being given assurance of their salvation even though they're not saved, and that's a terrible, terrible thing to have happen. Um, If you're walking with Christ, there's assurance. If you're a Christian or you're not a Christian and you're walking in the flesh, there's no assurance for you in the flesh. And I'll never forget early in my Christian life, I believe I was a Christian, but I was totally wayward and I was in the flesh and I was trying to get my bearings straight. And it was in my cage at SEAL Team 3 when I was sitting there realizing that I was trying to walk down two roads and I was a total hypocrite. And I, I, I was like, I can't go on saying I'm a Christian anymore because I'm not. And I want what's in here, but it's just not working itself out. So I'm done. I don't want to say I surrendered in the sense that I surrendered, I gave my life to God. It was more like I surrendered, said I'm done, I can't do it, I'm failing. I like sure want this stuff, God. And if it's true, can you just make it happen? And as I look back on my life, that was a huge turning point. Like I, I probably was a Christian, but I don't know. Maybe I, like it's hard to tell if you're walking away from the Lord. Now on the other extreme. This isn't for the, where we don't want to go and what the author doesn't want to do is for the super sensitive Christian that has a really tender conscience and for lack of better words, their self-assurance in the Lord is, is kind of rocky to get out with because there's, there are some of us that just sort of that beat us ourselves up. And, and, and this isn't to decimate us. And I think that's why the author goes to verse 9. In verse 9 he says, but beloved... We are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. And then the rest of chapter 6 is sort of like the attaboys. Come on, you can do it. You're doing good. Run your race. Keep it up. But there's something good about us getting a little, like, scared to, to examine. Is my hope really founded on Christ? Have I taken the gospel and have I married my faith with the gospel in a way that it transforms me, that it changes my life? Or if I only intellectually married knowledge to it like the demons 
who acknowledge the gospel, who know the things of the scripture. They, they know it, but they, don't, they haven't believed it. So there's something good about us having our foundation sort of like rocked a little bit so that we make sure that we're standing on the right ground. Okay, I should actually get into the passage here. So we get to verse 4. For in the case of those who had been enlightened and had tasted of the heavenly gift and had been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good work of God and the powers of the age to come and then having fallen away. Okay, so we're not, we're not talking about the, the backsliding Christian. However, if you are presently a Christian who is not walking with the Lord, you should feel the weight of the implication because if you're actually a Christian but you're not walking with him and you're, you're walking in the world, the, the scripture just points to you in these categories like in the same way because I, 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 if, if you're a believer and you're walking in the flesh and you're doing this, these should sort of rattle your heart to kind of bring you back. It's a, be- it's a wonderful gift of grace for God to carry you to bring you back into his fold. But you read this and you think, tasted the heavenly gift, partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God. How can this be? I think back to my early years in Christianity. I remember going to church uh, Tuesday night. I was still very much in the world. I've shared this story a bunch of times, but guys, I only have one story. I'm sorry to keep repeating myself, but I, I have one story of coming to Christ. Um, and they nagged me to go to church, and I finally said, I'll go to church, I'll go Tuesday nights, and, but promise me you'll never ask me to go again. And so they said, that's a deal, I'll go. That sounds good to us. And then I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But I'm wearing T-shirt, I'm wearing shorts, and I'm wearing flip-flops. Is that going to be a deal breaker? Because that's how, like, we don't care. Our pastor preaches barefoot. He's an ex-pro surfer. It's like, oh, man, I thought I had an out. And, and so then I went. And then I went again. And I was not a believer. But I continued to go. Months went by. Still wasn't a believer, but I was a social chameleon, so I went and I bought a Bible. I failed the first time. I bought a men's devotional the first time. And they're like, oh, turn to such and such book. And I'm going, hey, what day are they on? He's like, what do you mean what day are they on? I'm like, mine just has dates. And it's not lining up. And he's like, no. And he was very kind and loving to me. And he said, oh, you actually, that's not a Bible. That's a devotional book. It's like, I'll try again. That's really embarrassing because I'm trying to fit in with everybody. And, and, and so I continued to go. And I, I, remember, I remember the people were so loving. It was like something I'd never experienced before in my life. Like I was going to sort of try to tick them off. I don't even remember what T-shirts I was wearing, but I was wearing stuff that was trying to prick a little bit, you know, and though how to see if they like me. All these religious people are just sort of religious and mean, and, and, and they just loved on me. They were warm. They were gentle. They gave me free pizza, which was a huge motivator to keep coming back and after a few months I sort of was like I was becoming I was less confrontational in my heart but I wasn't a believer but I was close but I didn't have the the pieces weren't fitting together and I remember a fellow team guy that was going he pulled me aside one day afterwards and like seriously like to this day I still have this this is a perfect story because 
I'm pretty sure that I'm a believer at this point. I'm pretty sure that this guy is not a believer. But at the time, God used him. And he said, hey, man, how's your relationship with Jesus? And I knew the right answer was to say, we're tight, we're good. Which I said to him. Then I went, went home, and for like the next month, I remember going to sleep and going, relationship, what does that mean? Like I'd go to church, I'd bought a Bible, got the right time, I got the Bible the second time, and doing all this stuff, Jesus is dead. How am I supposed to have a relationship with him? Like, kinda, like I, I, the whole thought rattled me. And finally, like after a night of drinking and the Chargers losing, and I was throwing up, I remember the Chargers, like it was a big blur. And it dawned on me, Jesus is alive. And he wants a relationship with me. And, and it was like this, my, like this turning point, this whole understanding just changed everything. But prior to that point, so for myself, I think I tasted and then became I wonder about these two friends. I haven't mentioned the second guy, but but they tasted, and I'm not sure that it took root, but they were participating. We all were participating. We all felt convicted by the Spirit of God. We saw his word come alive. I, I saw things happen in people's life. And so this, the scary thing is, the, the warning is these people were, they participated. They were right there in their midst, but they never closed the deal with God. They never responded in faith, but they were right there. And, and you meet them today and they say, oh, I used to go to church. I think of the case for Christ when I read it many years ago. Uh, the story's kind of vague, so don't correct me if you've read it recently. But, but I remember that Lee Strobel, one of the guys he interviewed was a guy who was a former pastor who was now an atheist. And Lee Strobel was interviewing him to get the atheist point of view. And as he interviewed him, he was making all of his cases of why he doesn't believe in all of this stuff and yada, 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 yada. Technical words there. Um, And at one point the pastor says, or the former pastor says, you know, I really do miss Jesus. I really miss those times. I really, I experienced some things that I can't put in word, but I, I reject the gospel. I reject that Jesus' claim is, is Christ. I think of Jesus' words in Matthew 7, the terrifying words, 21 and 23, and Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. Ter- terrifying words. I think it forces us to really examine, have we latched on to Jesus by faith? And I don't think that this is necessarily at this point where we're, I think these are people who have now moved beyond this, where their hearts have become hardened. But for the people who are in the church, there's sort of two angles. Those believers that were in Hebrews And for those of us who had loved ones that have gone away from the faith, to understand that not everybody who, as Alistair Begg says, professes Christ, possesses Christ. See, we can only go by profession. So when I baptize somebody, I simply say, I ask them some questions. And have you, you explain your faith to me. 
And so I baptize on what I hear, but I'm not God, so I can't see if they actually are possessed by Christ, if they have him in their heart. This is why children in the church, like it scare me. Like children that are raised in the church, I mean, not scare me like VBS scare me with balls going around, but like as a shepherd, it scares me because it's so easy to say, oh, they say the right things and we give them credit that they're saved when they're not. It's tough. I mean, my little Gideon, he's, you know, he's coming up on five. Easter, he came super moved from Sunday school. He was like in tears hearing the news about Jesus on the cross and that Jesus died for his sins. We prayed with him. Maybe he became a Christian. As a dad, I hope he became a Christian. I, I hope I'm going to continue to invest in him and pour into him. But let me see my son at 25. Let me see my son walking with God then. I, I, I don't think that the, the Bible subscribes to some assurance of salvation like Joe Schmo's been do, living crazy and doing stupid stuff, totally opposed, uh, turning his back on God and saying, well, think, you know, Johnny, when he was three, he gave his life to the Lord. So thankfully, we believe in assurance of salvation. I don't think that the Bible gives that. Um, okay, let's move on. I'll probably have you guys all sort of rattled. It's going to get worse. Because <laughs> it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Since they again crucify themselves the Son of God, and put him to open shame. I want to explain this to you guys. I need to figure out how to explain it to you guys. Remember back in chapter 3, when the writer of Hebrews writes, and he's pleading, today if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. And he pleads, don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. Today's the day. If you hear his voice, respond, respond. Because if you get in the habit of rejecting God's voice, your heart gets hard. And the Bible describes a period when your heart becomes so hard that it no longer can become softened. I think 1 John 5, 16 talks, talks about this sin unto death. Matthew and Luke record Jesus talking about the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is that the person goes to their death basically rejecting their Savior. As 2 Peter 2, 1 talks about rejecting the one who purchased them, who bought them. And so he pleads, don't fall away. Paul in 1 Timothy talks about that those that, that wander away, their hearts, their consciences become seared like a branding iron it's ir- irreversible damage. And he says, since they again crucify them, the Son of God, and put him to open shame. So the idea is these are people who tasted, they walked, they proclaimed, they were all for Jesus. But now, if we were to rewind the clock and go back to the scene with Pontius Pilate, Jesus, and Barabbas, these people would now be screaming, crucify him crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Give us the murderer. For I reject the claims that he's the Messiah. These people are crucify him over and over again, and they no longer hold to it. These people are in open rebellion against the gospel. That's the warning. 
And then he gives this picture, this illustration. Verse 7, For ground that drinks of the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation is useful to those for whose sake it is tilled and receives a blessing from God. But it yields thorns and thistles and it's worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. So this is an illustration from farming. It begs the question, How's the soil of your spiritual life looking? There's this instruction for us to examine our hearts, to examine the fruit or lack of it in our life. And because then we're forced to deal with it, what's hindering fruit from coming forth in my life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. And I think there's like two more. And I wrote a whole page. Huh? Goodness and self-control. Hey, I was right too. I knew I was right there. But if, but if these if the fruit of the spirit is not coming out in your life, these verses are beautiful because then they scare us. Like I think I'm a believer. Like what's like why is there not fruit? Is there sin in my life? Am I if I'm am I not cultivating the soil of my heart? Am I not spending time with word? Am I not spending time in fellowship? Am I not serving? Am I not doing things that that help bring forth life? There, there's a there's a warning here. That the longer you sit under God's teaching, and the more exposed you are to his truth and then you reject it the consequences increase it says if you're sitting here if the rain of his word continues to pour and drip into your life and thorns and thistles are coming up eventually it's just going to be burned and as we examine our life it the story that comes to mind in john chapter six if you want to turn there with me Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. In John chapter 6, verse 60, Jesus had disciples, not the 12, but a huge number of disciples had been following him at this point. He starts teaching them some really difficult things, some things that kind of ticked off the people. And this is sort of where we entered the story in verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, not the 12, the larger numbers, When they heard this, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who did not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. As a result, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So now we're back to the 12. They've all gone away. But Jesus isn't done yet. And he says to the 12, you don't want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve was going to betray them. And I, I, 
this picture of Peter is just like beautiful. Is Peter perfect? No, 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 I love Peter. But he's still going to betray Jesus, all this stuff. But he's not perfect by any means. But as Jesus is pushing, 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 what are you holding on to, Jesus? What, or Peter, what are you clinging to? It's like, Jesus, you're the only thing I have. You're my only hope. You're the only source of eternal life. And I'm going to cling on to you with everything I love. Is I'll go to death with you. He had a couple of hiccups along the way, but ultimately he did give his life to Jesus. Or he was sacrificed in proclaiming his death. And so these are hard words. And the author doesn't leave us there. He says, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and all the things that accompany salvation Though we are speaking in this way. He says, I know this is hard. I'm not trying to like scare you guys away. There's assurance, there's hope, but if your flesh is dominating your life, it's good for you to be scared. It's good for you to evaluate, are you really walking with the Lord? Because it goes back to that story of my dad, remember in the plane? As a human, as a pastor, as individuals looking out at one another, looking at my own life, if your plane, spiritual plane starts to stall, I can't tell you if you're going to survive. I can't tell you if your engines are going to get back on. Are you going all the way to the ground and like perishing? If you're here and you're not sure where you stand with God, it's, the gospel is so simple. It's so simple that it blows our mind that Jesus stepped out of heaven. He walked a perfect life. He went to the cross according to the scriptures to make payment for our sins. That on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out upon him that he went to the grave, that he rose from the grave on the third day. He conquered death. To receive this gift, it's belief. It's not that Jesus covered like 80% and it's up to you to cover the next 20% to, to bridge the gap. He paid it all. And as the old hymn says, and all to him I owe. And so if your plane right now is like about to crash and burn because you don't have your faith in Christ, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Now, if you're a Christian and you're backsliding and you're being drugged to church and you're doing this and you don't really like your ear, well, your plane is stalling. Do whatever you got to do to start the engine. Like whatever it is that's hindering your walk with Christ, Christ is calling you to come to me. Be fed, be restored. And for those of us who are walking great with the Lord, who are, who are listening to this going, well, this is, this, is, this is very encouraging. It doesn't apply to me. I'm flying strong. I love the Lord. I'm doing really good. Well, I'd encourage you to, 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 to continue to, to run the race. Run it humbly with, with humility. Second Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed and does not fall. We need to run a race. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12 is going to say, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that, that which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The author ultimately is driving the readers to run your race with Christ fully, completely. If there are things that are bogging you down, chuck them, get rid of them. Because walk, living your life for Christ, that's what matters. And so Father, we do thank you. We praise you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for your word. Father, this is a hard word to hear. And so, Father, I pray for those who maybe are not sure of their salvation. 
Father, I pray that the gospel would be made clear to them, that they would be able to unite the gospel with their faith, that they would be sealed by the Spirit. Father, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to run our race, that you would help us to to live this life in a way that's pleasing to you. I'm sure we each have had friends and family and loved ones who once profess Christ but are no longer walking with you. Lord, we lift up our dear friends and our family members to you. Lord, that your spirit would convict them, that you would help them not to drift from Christ any longer, but that they would go to him. We love you, Lord. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.